great to see you here at the EU public meeting. And I'm really glad that you could join us here today. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at a section out of Mark's account about Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection. It comes from Mark chapters 2 and 3, so early on in Jesus' public ministry. And it starts with this section that Jemima just read out for us. But I think that most of those who think Jesus was a good guy, you know, if you just went out and surveyed people in your local area, if we could do that, if you, most of those who think Jesus was just a good guy have probably actually never listened to anything much that Jesus said. The reason I say that is because those who did listen carefully to what Jesus said in the first century, well, a lot of them didn't end up liking Jesus very much. What Jesus said was quite controversial. In fact, more than controversial. That's really a bit of an understatement. If you look through just these first couple of chapters, chapters 2 and 3 of Mark's Gospel, there's Jesus' encounter with a whole bunch of people and they have all sorts of different reactions to him. I'm going to pop it up on the screen for you just so that you can actually get a bit of a feel for it. Here it is. In Mark's account in chapters 2 and 3, there's, as I said, Jesus interacts with a, a whole number of people. Let's just look at the different reactions that they have to Jesus. I'll pop it up on the screen. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, people respond to Jesus with outrage. A bit later on, in verse 16, they treat Jesus and his followers with disdain. A bit later on, in chapter 2, verse 24, there's public protest at what Jesus and his followers are doing. Followed up at the beginning of chapter 3 by secret scheming, looking to dig up dirt on Jesus, which then becomes a full-on conspiracy to murder him. A bit later on in chapter 3 and verse 21, there's a fa his family, his biological family, stage an intervention to get Jesus out of the situation that he's in, such is the reaction that he was receiving. And then in chapter 3, verse 22, there's a public denouncement of Jesus by the authorities. So here's a whole bunch of different reactions, none of which are particularly positive, all of which are actually quite negative. Who made these reactions? Who had these reactions? Well, if you read through the account, which I encourage you to do this week, it only takes you a few minutes to read a couple of pages. But here's who had these reactions. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it's the teachers of the law the teachers of the Old Testament Jewish law who had the outrage. And it's the teachers of the law, particularly those who belonged to the Pharisee group, who were a particular group within Judaism, who were really concerned with keeping the Old Testament law. They're very concerned for religious purity. They treat Jesus and his disciples with disdain when they see how they're living. It's the Pharisees again who staged the public protest in chapter 2, verse 24. It's the Pharisees who look to dig up dirt on Jesus in their secret scheming, and then the Pharisees who join together with the Herodians to conspire to murder Jesus. Now, that's interesting. The Pharisees were religious leaders. The Herodians had charge of the temple. They were really more a political class. So you had religious and political authorities joining together, conspiring to kill Jesus. Then the family intervention, you have Jesus' family, who try to forcefully start a, an intervention because they don't approve of what Jesus is doing. And then you have the teachers of the law who've journeyed down from the capital, Jerusalem, to give their public denouncement of Jesus. 
So you can see Jesus drew a lot of negative reaction from those who actually heard him, those who actually listened. Why? What was he saying? What was he doing that was causing this reaction? Well, if you read through the chapter, you can see. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Jesus forgives a man his sins. Chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors, that is, those who don't live up to the religious standards of the religious leaders of the day. In chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus' disciples, his followers, break some of the food traditions that have been built up around the Old Testament Sabbath law. Again, in chapter 3, in verses 1 to 6, Jesus outrageously heals a man on the Sabbath day, the Jewish day for rest. Then in chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, the crowds are dis- so disrupting life around Jesus that his family decide they have to force an intervention. And then in chapter 3, verse 22, the teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus' popularity with the crowds was starting to threaten their power. I think that's what's going on there. So all the way through here, you can see Jesus has caused quite a reaction. He's caused a reaction from the religious leaders, from the political leaders, indeed from his own family. What we have going on here is, I would suggest, a revolution. This is a revolution. This is a political, religious, familial, that is to do with family, familial revolution. That's what Jesus is introducing. And that's why he's causing such a negative reaction. Because for Jesus, this was him introducing the revolutionary kingdom of God. Mark recorded us just in back in chapter one, Jesus' central message. And it was this, the time has come, Jesus announced, the kingdom of God is near. So repent and believe this gospel, this good news about the kingdom of God. And this section, I think, of Mark's account here, following on from Jesus' announcement, is giving us a bit of an idea of the scope of this revolution. This is what the revolution of the kingdom of God will bring in. So what I'm going to do today, in the little time we have, is trace through this idea of the revolutionary kingdom of God and the authority of Jesus that's fundamental to it. Trace this through these just two chapters, chapter 2 and 3, just briefly. Now, there's a lot of information here in these chapters of Mark's account that we won't have time to explore in more detail. Some really significant things like what's the relationship between sin and sickness? Or what should we as Christians, as followers of Jesus today, what should anyone make of the Sabbath day now? Or what do we do about some of the outrageous things Jesus says about family with respect to the kingdom of God? I'd really love to dig down into some of those issues. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to record it as a bit of a podcast and try to pop it up on the EU website, hopefully tonight, maybe tomorrow. So if you'd like to dig down into any of those issues, then why don't you jump online to the EU website and look for that podcast that should come up tonight or maybe tomorrow. Also, remember, if you've got any questions as we go through this today, please do just pop it on the chat or pop it on Slido, and we'll have a look at some of those questions as we come towards the end. 
Now, the reason the kingdom of God was near, remember that was Jesus' announcement, the kingdom of God is near. The reason the kingdom of God was near was because the arrival of Jesus himself was fundamental to the arrival of the kingdom. Mark had told us in the very first sentence of his historical account here that Jesus is the Christ, that is, he's the anointed one, the king. The kingdom of God has come near because Jesus, the king, has himself arrived. And when the king walks into a room, that's an immediate challenge to anyone else who's claiming power for themselves. And that's exactly why there is such tension and outrage in these encounters. This section of Mark's account is showing us that Jesus is the king in God's kingdom, and that's a threat to everyone else's authority. I was trying to think about what would be a contemporary example of someone who challenged both political authority and religious authority and familial authority, and it's really hard to come up with a similar example. I don't think anyone's actually been as revolutionary as Jesus has himself. Here's um, what I was thinking a little as I'll show it to you on the screen. I was thinking, well, Nelson Mandela is a great example of someone who really did introduce a political revolution. But you'd have to put Nelson Mandela together with someone like a Martin Luther from the Reformation that happened in the 15th and 16th century. You'd have to sort of put the two of them together to get a bit of the sense of the scope of the revolution that Jesus is introducing with the kingdom of God. But then you've got to put the political and the religious together with the familial. Well, I honestly couldn't think of an example of someone who's introduced an across-the-board revolution in our very understanding of family. But that's what Jesus does in these accounts. He combines the political, the religious, and the familial and reintroduces a revolution at all of those levels. That's what the kingdom of God does. So let's have a little bit of a look at this. And um, if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to open it up. We're in Mark chapter 2 and 3, and we'll have a quick, quick run through just what Jesus does, what Mark records for us that, about Jesus' teaching and actions in these chapters. You can see there from the beginning of chapter 2 that Jesus had just come back to Capernaum where he'd healed many people previously, which we read about in chapter 1. And the crowds, therefore, because Jesus has come back and did all those amazing healings last time, the crowds flock in. And Mark records for us that there were a group of young men who were desperate to get their paralysed friend healed by Jesus. But the crowd was so big that they couldn't get in. But they were not to be deterred. So they took to the roof of the house that Jesus was in and the flat roof of the Middle Eastern houses of the day and still often today, they smashed through the roof. They dug a hole big enough to lower down their mate in front of Jesus on his mat. Now, their expectation in this is very clear, isn't it? Jesus, our friend, clearly needs your help. And so Jesus obliges, but not in the way they expect. Have a look at what Mark records, chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, that is, of the friends and of the man himself, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's that statement of Jesus that so outrages the religious leaders who are watching on. They're not outraged that 
Jesus didn't heal the guy, that's maybe what might have outraged me if I was one of the friends who had let down my mate. What they're outraged about is that Jesus had the audacity to forgive this guy's sins. Now, hang on. Sin is what we do against God. Sin is when we ignore God's word or ignore God's way. When we really say to God, I don't want you to be God in my life. That's what sin is. And these were good Jews. They knew that there was only one true living God. And they knew that only he could forgive sins. In their estimation, Jesus was blaspheming. He was claiming a prerogative for himself. That was God's alone. Healings are one thing. But now Jesus had crossed a line. Now Jesus responds to their outrage with a question. Have a look at verse 8 in Mark's account, chapter 2. Jesus says, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? It's an interesting question. Which is easier, to forgive someone their sins or to make a lame person walk? Well, the answer is they are both impossible for anyone except one so empowered by God. They're impossible for you or I. But what I do notice is that one of them is certainly more visible in its effects. And so what Jesus decides to do, have a look in verses 10 to 12. Jesus says, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. That is, Jesus does the physical healing to show that he has the authority for the spiritual healing. Notice how Jesus describes his authority there in verse 10. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That phrase, the Son of Man, is a bit intriguing. Uh, All four gospel accounts in the Christian New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all record that Jesus used this distinctive phrase, the Son of Man, to talk about himself. And it seems that Jesus chose this, this phrase that was deliberately a bit ambiguous, deliberately a little bit slippery. See, the phrase, the Son of Man, was a roundabout way of saying a man. You think about it for a moment. The Son of a man is just another man. It's the way of talking about a human being, a mortal. But there was a particular son of man mentioned in the Old Testament that Jesus seems to deliberately have had in mind. You read about it in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, a particularly unique son of man. Let me pop it on the screen for you and we'll show, we'll have a look at it together. Here's what we read in the book of Daniel. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me, was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
This isn't just any son of man, is it? This son of man has unique authority. We read there, he was given authority and sovereign power by God himself, by the ancient of days, such that all nations and peoples of every language worship him. His rule, his dominion is everlasting. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This son of man is the one Jesus is claiming to be. He's claiming to have that level of authority, that level of power. And the issue then of Jesus' authority runs right through these accounts, these encounters in Mark chapters 2 and 3. Let me run through it super briefly for you. In chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, Jesus is asked, how come, Jesus, your disciples don't fast, don't forego food for certain seasons or times? Jesus' answer, because I'm the bridegroom, I'm the groom. Now, that might not seem very clear to us, but what Jesus is doing there is he's riffing off a significant Old Testament image which describes the nation of Israel as God's bride. And Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. You see how such a claim that is for authority, for position, for power? Jesus follows it up with another potent Old Testament image where Israel had been described as a vineyard. And Jesus says, well, I'm the new wine, which you can't pour into the old wineskins lying around the vineyard. No, the revolution is here. The new wine is here. You need new wineskins for this new wine. And then Mark records an example, of actually, of what Jesus is talking about. Well, two examples, actually, both about the Jewish Sabbath. See, the religious leaders in chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, they criticised Jesus because his disciples had picked some grain to eat as they walked along, which according to the traditions that they'd built up around the Old Testament Jewish Sabbath, they shouldn't have done that. But Jesus, in response, cites a precedent, as precedent an episode in the Old Testament from 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's about David, who went on to be Israel's king, at this particular point in time, David has been anointed as king, but not yet enthroned. He's the king in waiting, if you like, waiting for his enthronement, which I think is significant here for Jesus, because Jesus has been identified as the Christ, the king, and yet we know his final enthronement only comes through his death and resurrection at the end of his ministry. So he cites this example from David back in 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David and his men eat bread that by law, by the Old Testament law, they shouldn't have eaten. And so Jesus says, well, David did it, his men did it. And he says, and the son of man, there's that authoritative figure from Daniel again. He says, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now that really irks the religious authorities. And now they're on the hunt for dirt to dig up on Jesus. And they have a confrontation with him in a synagogue on another Sabbath day over whether it's right for Jesus. They have a bit of a confrontation with Jesus um, over whether it's right for him to heal on the Sabbath day or not. And that interaction gets the Pharisees so riled up that they then go out and start plotting with the Herodians, who they didn't normally get on with, plotting with the Herodians who held the political power about how together they might kill Jesus. 
religious and political power coming together in the face of Jesus' revolutionary claims to authority. And the political challenge of Jesus' revolutionary kingdom of God comes out then in the next two encounters that Mark records in these chapters. In chapter 3, verse 11, as Jesus goes around healing those oppressed by unclean spirits, the spirits recognise his kingly authority and they repeatedly cry out, you are the son of God. And the son of God was a title used in the Old Testament for Israel's king. And then in chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, Jesus reenacts the moment from Israel's past where Israel became a political nation. You might remember the story how the one true living God rescued his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt, brought them to himself, and at Mount Sinai, the Lord himself came down on top of the mountain within a cloud and called the people to come to him. Well, Jesus now reenacts that moment. Instead of the Lord God calling the 12 tribes of Israel to himself at Mount Sinai, Jesus goes up a mountainside and calls 12 apostles, individuals, sent ones is what apostles means. Effectively, he's reconstituting Israel, the nation of Israel. He's, he's constituting a new Israel, if you like, a new people of God. Now, that action is potential political dynamite. That is potent political symbolism. You know, if a politician gets up and starts a speech with, I have a dream, you know who he's referencing. He's referencing Martin Luther King Jr. It's a potent act to reference that particular speech from Martin Luther King Jr. And when Jesus goes up the mountainside, calls 12 to himself, that's a potent political moment. What sort of political revolution will this be? Now, Jesus is certainly aware that the nature of this kingdom of God revolution could be very easily misunderstood. And with all the crowds flocking to him, he's got to be careful lest the authorities sort of close down his movement before he even has a chance to really explain it all. So Jesus deliberately, I think, damps down the expectation. When the unclean spirits cry out, you are the son of God, which we know, by the way, is right. They're right, right. Jesus is the son of God. Mark told us that in the very opening sentence of his account. When the spirits cry out, you are the son of God, Jesus' response is to order them to not tell who he is. That had been Jesus' standard practice to this point. You see him doing the same thing in chapter 1, verse 34, previously when he was in Capernaum, because they won't yet understand what this revolution will involve. Well, the final challenges to Jesus' authority in these two chapters of Mark's account come from maybe the most powerful authorities in Jesus' society. Now, you might think, if you know anything about the first century and Palestine at the time, you might think, right, well, the most powerful authorities are going to be Caesar and the power of the Roman Empire. But while the Romans did wield political power, sorry, military power, um, the real loyalty of the people lay not with Rome. The real loyalty of the people lay with the temple in Jerusalem and with your biological family. Those were the real sources of religious and social power. And what Mark does at this point is he weaves these two encounters together, which is something Mark likes to do and we'll actually notice it a number of times as we go on reading his account. Mark starts with Jesus' family 
Then he moves to the temple authorities, and then he pivots back to Jesus' family. But what ties them together is that both groups of people reject Jesus' authority. First, Jesus' family. Let me read to you from chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that Jesus and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Literally, actually, Mark writes there, his family went to seize him, believing that Jesus had gone berserk. They think he's insane. The constant crowds, such that Jesus is not even able to eat properly, in his family's estimation, this was now completely out of hand. It had to stop. Jesus, their brother, their son, he'd lost it. And so they plan a forceful family intervention. And yet at the same time, you have the religious leaders who come down from Jerusalem to make public their denouncement of Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 22. And the teachers of the law who'd come down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Jesus is not a good guy in their estimation. Their verdict is he's working for the other side. The reason he can command these unclean spirits is because Jesus is in league with the ruler of the unclean spirits. Jesus' authority is demonic. It's evil, they're saying. So both family and temple reject Jesus' claim to authority, to be this son of man, to be the son of God. One saying he's insane and the other saying he's in league with darkness. Jesus pushes back on both. To the religious leaders from Jerusalem, Jesus points out the logical implausibility of their position. I mean, if Jesus is really working for the evil one, if he's working for Satan, but in so doing he's freeing people whom Satan has been oppressing, then Satan's kingdom is divided. Satan's kingdom is doomed. That's not a coherent explanation, actually, of what Jesus has been doing. Jesus gives a different explanation. He says, Satan might be the strong man who's captured people under his control, but I'm the one who's broken into the strong man's house. I've tied him up, and now I'm the one robbing him of those people he had captured. And what's more, says Jesus, if you persist in writing off what I'm doing, if you persist in writing off what I'm doing in the power of the Holy Spirit, then actually you're the one who's in league with the evil one. You're the one who's actually guilty of an eternal sin that can't be forgiven. At which point, Mark says, Jesus' family arrive. And the message comes through the crowd. Your family are calling you. Now remember, family loyalty, family solidarity in that day was everything. And as it is still in many cultures today, family loyalty is the primary allegiance. But then Jesus shows just the, how revolutionary this kingdom of God really will be. Let me read to you from chapter 3, verses 33. I'll read from verse 32. A crowd was sitting around him. and They told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. 
Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Now, that's a pretty obvious question, right? Who are your mother and brothers? They're the ones standing outside who are calling for you. Come on, get to it. And then Jesus gives his revolutionary answer. Then Jesus looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and sister and brother. Notice how revolutionary the choice is that Jesus gives them. Do I obey my my family or do I do the will of God? See, Jesus is not just reconstituting the nation. He's not just remaking the religion. He's redefining family in light of the kingdom of God. And that's probably the most radical, fundamental revolution of all. Now, exactly how these political and religious and familial revolution of the kingdom of God is going to play out, well, that's only going to become clear as Jesus continues his ministry and as we read on in Mark's account. But what we can say at this particular point is this. The fundamental revolution that Jesus is making is very clear. It's about one's alignment with the living God. Notice it was there in what Jesus just said at the end. It's about doing the will of God and aligning of yourself to what God wants. And it was there in the very first story as well, when they lowered that paralyzed man through the roof and Jesus said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven when he saw their faith. Remember, Jesus' basic message, as we saw last week, was the kingdom of God is near. Repent, turn around, change your attitude. Turn back to God and believe this good news about the kingdom. See, the political, the religious, and the familial revolution are actually all grounded in a spiritual revolution. Instead of turning away from the one true living God and Jesus his son, we're called by Jesus to turn back to him. And that explains really why the kingdom of God is such a comprehensive revolution, because it starts with the most fundamental part of each person, our relationship with the one true living God who made us and loves us. And if you have a revolution at that level in your life, then that really does shape everything else, your politics, your religion, your family, everything. I don't know if you've come across some of the articles that have been written in the last couple of weeks saying that this COVID-19 crisis, it's going to change everything, so we're told. It's going to introduce a whole new state of affairs with everything going online, our social life, our work life, our study life, with everything going online, there'll be no going back to exactly like it was before, people are saying. And not all the changes may be positive. Uh, Will there be a lessening of our interpersonal skills because we've spent all of this time relating online? Will the kids who are missing out on school actually miss out on key socialisation and will that just affect everything going forward? Maybe this COVID-19 situation really will change things for good for a long time. Well, Jesus has already introduced a revolution. And I think any student of history would be hard-pressed to deny just how revolutionary the teachings of Jesus have been 
for the last 2,000 years. But at heart, Jesus' revolution is really a personal revolution. It's about your heart, and it really does change everything. I've been a follower of Jesus for many years now. I make many mistakes along the way. But the changes it has introduced in my life are incredibly far-reaching. Because I'm following Jesus, because I've put my faith, my trust in him, that has changed how I think about money. It's changed how I think about politics and what I hope for from worldly, earthly government. It's changed how I think about the environment. It's changed how I think about my family. It's changed how I think about my career, my work life. This fundamental change of aligning oneself to Jesus in faith changes everything. And may I say, changes it for the better. Don't you think our world needs a political revolution? Don't you think it needs a religious revolution when you look at the terrible things that have been done in the name of religion? Don't you think it needs a family revolution when you see the destruction that goes on in so many families, maybe your own? The revolution that Jesus introduces is deeply needed and deeply personal. It starts with you, with me. Remember when the man was lowered down through the roof, was paralysed, Jesus saw his faith and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't address First of all, his paralysis. He addressed his spiritual need, his need for forgiveness for his sin, for turning away from God. It's interesting, straight after healing that paralyzed man, Jesus goes out and he uh, meets a guy called Levi who's a tax collector and Jesus says, come follow me. And Levi, being a tax collector, was not well regarded in his community. He was regarded really as a, a political traitor working for the Romans instead of being loyal to the Jewish people. But he goes, Levi leaves his his work and goes and follows Jesus and Jesus has a meal at Levi's house with a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners, that is those who didn't live up to the religious standards of the day. And the religious leaders are critical of Jesus and saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus gives this answer. He says, it's not not the well who need a doctor, it's the sick. And he said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has come to address your most fundamental need, that spiritual need for forgiveness, that you might realign yourself with one true living God. You might respond and follow Jesus in faith. That's what he's come to do, to affect that personal revolution. And then that will play out in every other part of your life. If you've not read through these couple of chapters of Mark, and I encourage you to do it this week. It'll only take you a few minutes to read Mark chapter 2 and 3. And maybe you might like to jump on the podcast when it goes up later this week to explore more deeply some of the issues raised in these particular chapters. And maybe you can turn, come back next week as we continue to explore the teaching and life and death and resurrection of Jesus as we look at Jesus, maybe one of his most famous things about his teaching, the parables that Jesus taught, which we'll look at next week. Thanks.